podcast from Aberdeen Investment Trusts. Hello and welcome to today's podcast on the Dunedin Income Growth Investment Trust. I'm Cherry Reynard and with me today are the Trust Managers, Ben Ritchie and Rebecca McLean. So welcome Ben, welcome Rebecca. Um, Rebecca, if we could start with you. Um, I've seen a lot of people suggesting that the ARM IPO may be a turning point for the global IPO market, which has been uh, pretty anemic over the past sort of 12 months or so. Um, what are you seeing in the UK? And do you do you invest in IPOs? Is it something you take an interest in? Yes, thanks, Cherry. Um, yeah, as you say, we have seen a material slowdown in the IPO market in the UK. So after a booming time and um, towards the end of 2020 and in 2021 for IPOs, we've seen the market decelerate and pretty much close in the UK. So the amount which has been raised is down about 90% um, in 2022 versus 2021 and really there have only been a handful of IPOs that we've seen in the UK and this is because of the geopolitical uncertainty you know the heightened volatility around the Ukraine war rising interest rates and inflation which has really led to a slowdown as people question valuations and sort of appetite to to buy into new companies and companies are looking for different avenues in order to raise capital. So I'd say that the outlook for IPOs in the UK does continue to look pretty weak and so not hearing about much in the pipeline Um, and I think that the market's probably waiting for some stability in the macroeconomic environment, um, some you know receding recession risk in the UK, peak expectations around interest rates, um, but also probably looking for more appetite for UK equities and sort of flows within to the asset class before you um, would see a material pickup in the IPO pipeline. Uh, for the UK. So, um, yeah, we're not there yet. In terms of our approach to IPOs, I mean, I think it's fair to say that we are open to seeing new companies come to the UK market. We're certainly sort of welcome companies who are looking to list in the UK and in Europe as well, and will take time to understand the businesses, meet the management teams where possible, and do the work. But um, I think our approach is to is to take a balanced view to question things like why the company is looking to IPO and you know dig into the valuation which is uh, being suggested for the market and so given our approach is very much bottom up and fundamental driven it is quite rare that we do participate in IPOs for, for Digit, um, but we have done it in the past. Um, for example, Moonpig, we participated in the IPO for that business. Um, and in reality, what we'll probably do is get to know the company and continue to meet them post-listing, follow the results. And it could be that whilst we don't participate in an IPO, we may become shareholders further down the line when um, the company's got more of a track record and we met the company more times and we've got a sort of a, a higher conviction within the business case. So we're certainly sort of open to the idea, very encouraging of companies looking to listen in the UK, but in terms of our actual participation, it's quite rare in terms of um, adding new companies to IPO. Okay, thanks, Rebecca. Bringing you in, Ben, um, there's some quite contradictory data emerging from the UK at the moment. Some suggest 
suggesting strength and some suggesting real weakness. I mean, where do you see the pockets of strength and weakness in the UK economy today? Yes, Jerry, I think it's, it is quite a, a contradictory set of data. We've seen, generally speaking, stronger wage growth than expected. And at the same time, we've actually seen unemployment data uh, picking up. We've seen uh, weaker house price growth or contraction in, in house prices. At the same time, I, mean, I think the sort of PMI type data remains soft, but it's not sort of materially decelerating. Um, and I think it really is indicative of an economy that's uh, sort of fairly stagnant. I think it would probably be the would be the overall picture. Manufacturing, you know, is a smaller part of the economy, but perhaps still suffering from weaker global trends. Um, domestic service oriented areas still doing okay, but perhaps with a with a slowing trend. And so I think the overall picture just continues to be one of of stagnation, really. And I think you see that with the overall GDP growth numbers. And I think that sort of tells the tale, really, for us as investors that, you know, our strategy is is based on investing in companies which we think can do materially better than GDP growth, both uh, UK GDP growth and global GDP growth in terms of their, their revenue prospects. And also looking to find companies where we can whose businesses are not uh, too driven by the macroeconomic cycle. You know, we want companies in the portfolio that have got strong structural drivers that they can grow, uh, maybe not completely regardless of the economic backdrop, but uh, to some degree highly macro independent. And so, you know, while we, we always are you know, very aware of what's going on in terms of the uh, both the domestic and, and global economies, you know, the vast amount of our efforts go into trying to identify those companies that have got those strong structural drivers. And I think that's, you know, been something that's, that's set the trust in decent uh, decent shape over the years. And I think, you know, again, I think we're seeing some of the benefits of that in, in 2023. Thanks, Ben. Um, I mean, Rebecca, on those structural drivers, I'm wondering what your view is on the leisure sector at the moment. Uh, we're hearing lots about the impact of so-called Swiftonomics, you know, the Taylor Swift phenomena in the US. Um, but we're also seeing kind of good results from the airlines over here, suggesting that People are spending more on services and experiences than, than goods. Um, what's your view on that? Yeah, certainly there have been a number of headlines around the economic impact of some high grossing tours, such as the Taylor Swift tours. And, you know, I think this grabs attention because you can see evidence of a local boost to a local town and city, which is hosting one of these tours, given the influx of fans to the area. To the travel, to the venue, um, hotel costs and food costs. So I have seen one market research firm which has surveyed several hundred people who who visited a Taylor Swift concert and, and found that their average spend in total for all those categories was over a thousand dollars per show. So you can see how when you add this up it can grab the headlines but I think in reality the numbers aren't huge they're not moving the needle in terms of of GDP or consumer spend and going back to the point that Ben was making about what we're looking for I mean this spend is temporary in nature and doesn't really speak to to a structural shift so I think what this points to really is the phenomenon that we've seen post-COVID in terms of the health of the consumer. So increased saving rate, driving discretionary spend, but as you point to the nature of that spend changing. So 
away from products and services. So you're not spending so much on your garden furniture and your Peloton, but instead maybe spending more on experiences, so travel, going on holidays and going out to restaurants. So looking at what where we are at the moment in the UK, so the recent Barclay card data for July has come out and has shown that overall spend remains elevated versus pre-pandemic levels. And this is both from uh, an essential spend level where increases, those high inflation drivers have led to spikes in how much people are spending on essential items. And although it looks like in July, some of that is starting to cool as we're seeing fuel costs come down and food inflation peak. But the non-essential spend continues to grow strongly with airlines up 40% year on year and 30% up on pre-pandemic levels. So you're still seeing that evidence in the data in terms of where people are allocating their their capital. In terms of our investment and exposure to some of these sectors, I mean, the airline sector is quite challenging to invest in from a quality perspective. And this feeds through to thinking about certain companies which are going to deliver resilient dividends through the cycle and um, because the sector is cyclical it has been margins uh, which means it's very sensitive to the cycle um, it's highly competitive there are low barriers to entry so it's a challenging sector to gain exposure to when you've got that quality threshold which we have for the portfolio so whilst it's been a great year for the sector in terms of demand you know we're coming off a great summer we're going into a a lower demand environment in the winter, the outlook for fuel prices, questionable, which could impact margins. And so it's not one which we're looking at currently. In terms of where we do have exposure to consumer discretionary, we are looking for companies which have got niche exposures, have got strong business models and strong competitive positions, which means that they're in a strong position to weather fluctuations in consumer spend and, and confidence and can drive that structural growth through the cycle. So the companies that we've got include Games Workshop, Moonpig, Pets at Home, which are all pretty unique companies. Um, so Pets at Home is an example of a company which we've owned for a number of years, and it has an ambition to grow 7% over the medium term. So, you know, as Ben alluded to, we're looking for those companies which can outgrow the market. Um, and this is not only that the market's in a pretty good position, so the market's growing about 4% for pet care, but the company is a market leader and is able to outperform that driven by self-help, you know, investing in the estate new stores also their digital offering which will make the customer journey easier Um, and in addition they have a vets business which has got very highly attractive fundamentals too so that's what we're looking for we're looking for those structural winners within the consumer discretionary space Um, so we do have exposure but it's uh, but it's named like pets at home games workshop and moonpig where we see the most attractive investments at this point Okay, thanks, Rebecca. Um, and National Grid is another holding in the portfolio, and um, re-engineering the grid seems to be a really important part of the energy transition in the UK. I'm wondering what that means for the company and its investors, and how much is that part of your investment case for holding it? This is something that we've reintroduced into the portfolio in recent times. Um, we previously had a very large holding in SSE. 
uh, and there's been some changes uh, to our perception of the uh, ESG case around National Grid, which has allowed us to hold it. Um, some of you may remember that we had to sell it as part of the changes which we put through in 2021, and some of the changes that the company has made uh, over the last couple of years have allowed us to reconsider it for the portfolio. And I think when you look at the, the mix of National Grid, I mean, broadly speaking, you've got about half of its capital in the US and half of its capital in the UK. Um, the, the UK capital is invested in electrification and you've got uh, the distribution element, which is the kind of more local uh, wires. And then you've got the transmission element, which are the bigger backbone of the electricity uh, system. And, and it's the transmission element that probably has the most uh, interesting levels of, of growth that makes up about 60 percent of its of its UK exposure. And so the prospects there for capital investment and, and ultimately uh, driving the quantum of, of revenues and profit that National Grid can make uh, look, look pretty attractive over the medium term. Uh, and in the US, um, uh, again, you know, around half of the business, a little more over half, is exposed to uh, electrification. Perhaps not, um, not uh, such a simple business. There are more pieces to it, more elements of, of regulation. But again, uh, I think we think the prospects for, uh, for, for investment and, and ultimately returns for National Grid look pretty good. So uh, as ever, it is a regulated business. So you know, the gains that, that National Grid uh, make are ultimately shared with its end customers, which are at the end of the day are the people who buy the gas and electricity that they, that they transport. So their returns are to some degree capped over time. Uh, but when we look at grid, and if you look back over the long term, it's delivered eight to nine percent CAGR total returns uh, to its investors over the very long term. So it's probably towards the lower end of the return spectrum that we're looking for. Uh, but that's still a number that's ahead of what we would expect the market to deliver. And if you think the long term returns are say seven, then grid's still offering you a an outperformance of the wider market. It does it in a pretty consistent, steady way with uh, a high level of visibility over its its revenues and, and profit over the over the long term. Uh, and I think perhaps for us with our income hat on, probably 60% or so, maybe a little more of that total return is going to come through uh, in the shape of uh, Grid's dividend. And the other thing that Grid has going for it is that its revenues are inflation linked. So that does give it uh, some cushion uh, in terms of operating in a in a more inflationary environment, which is what we're which is what we're currently doing. So I think a very solid business. It it diversifies the revenue streams within our within our portfolio. Um, I don't think that Grid on its own is going to be an investment that blows the lights out. Uh, but I think it's a very solid holding, which will deliver outperformance, modest outperformance over the longer term, uh, and make an important contribution to diversifying our income uh, and allowing us to grow it in a in a good and steady way over over time. So absolutely very, an interesting holding. I think there's a good narrative there around the, the connection to the electrification of the economy. Uh, unfortunately, you have to share a little bit of the upside with the customer in that in that experience. Uh, but overall, you know, an interesting company for us to have, Jerry, within the portfolio. Okay, thanks, Ben. Rebecca, talking about the fund's approach to sustainability, how do you see it evolving? And has it changed even from the time that the mandate changed? As a reminder, the fund's got a sustainable investment approach, which does make it stand out from the market of sort of wider UK income investment trusts. 
And the approach is to look for not only um, screening out uh, ESG impact companies and sectors, but also looking to allocate capital positively to companies that we see as sustainable leaders and improvers. Um, so the overall approach that, that is in place has remained consistent since it was implemented. Um, but what I would say is that we are continuously looking to improve our understanding of companies exposures to ESG risks and also their management of those risks and opportunities as a firm at Aberdeen and um, so developing tools and approaches to be able to assess company positions and performance. So for example there has been a high level of interest in net zero commitments made by companies and we've certainly seen you know a wealth of companies in the UK looking to develop net zero or, or emission reduction targets and also to have these independently certified against the science-based targets initiative and so we've seen that that move within the UK where um, you know there will be leaders and then it becomes a standard um, across the corporate space in terms of setting these targets but what we've been doing at Aberdeen is looking to try and develop a framework to assess the credibility of these targets and take a view on the uh, sort of probability or the likelihood that a company is going to be able to decarbonize to the extent that they put out to the market so not just take the targets at face value but actually trying to dig in um, to the detail and, and give an assessment about whether we think those companies can achieve them so that's something that we've been working on as a firm um, and developed a framework um, which we're able to apply to companies so this looks at things like you know how ambitious are the targets and um, how has performance been for the companies against those targets um, their strategy, their capital allocation, is that aligned to being able to achieve uh, achieve the decarbonisation which they've set out? So that's a framework we've been working on and I think just speaks to the industry but also the firm, a continuous improvement in our under, trying to understand the risks and opportunities um, that environmental and social factors face for companies and that will help us to um, ensure that we're selecting those leaders, but also that we're excluding those companies which face the highest risks. So that's continuing and that sort of piece of work's ongoing. In terms of looking forward, I think the key development in the UK market, which is on the horizon, is the SDR. So this is equivalent to the SFDR regulation, which has come out in Europe. Um, it's the UK equivalent, which looks at the disclosures of funds which claim to have environmental and social credentials and um, so that is currently in, in consultation and as a firm we've been consulting with the regulator on the details of the regulation but I think that's going to be a key milestone for sustainable investment funds across the UK market over the next couple of years will be sort of understanding and reading the detail of that of that regulation and then making sure that any fund which has got sustainability objectives is compliant with with the disclosure requirements and the labelling rules which will be set out by the regulator. So that's something which we uh, are working on as a firm and we'll be closely monitoring um, and looking to make sure that our funds are positioned um, accordingly. 
Um, just finally, Ben, I mean, since the start of this year, the fund has moved to allow slightly more exposure to overseas companies. Um, can you talk about how the shift has had an impact on the portfolio and the dividend? Yeah, so we've increased the uh, percentage which we can potentially uh, invest outside of the UK market uh, by five percentage points from 20 to 25. Uh, and I think the important thing about that is it just gives us a, a little bit more flexibility to be able to to be able to manage the portfolio. Um, and as we've talked in the past, you know, why do we want to invest outside of the UK? Well, it gives us the opportunity to find potentially better investments. It gives us the opportunity to find uh, sectors uh, which aren't represented in the UK market. And I think over, overall allows us uh, to create a sort of richer and more diverse set of assets for, for shareholders. And I think having that little extra 5% is is pretty handy because we've always tended to operate at the top end of that band. And, and then you don't have the flexibility to be able to manoeuvre sometimes. So having that extra 5 percentage points is quite helpful. Um, we haven't increased the amount of capital that's invested overseas um, as a result of it, but it, it's quite likely that we will do over the medium term. And, and just as an example, it both gives us the potential to consider uh, new things, uh, but it, it will also give us the opportunity, particularly as we move through into, into dividend season, which typically is between kind of March and May in, in, in Europe, um, to maybe be a little bit more tactical with, uh, with income generation as well, which will be, which will be helpful. And, and I think it, it goes overall really to us continuing to want to find uh, you know, really interesting uh, companies that can generate uh, very attractive returns, both of income and capital, and, and having that extra flexibility just gives us more choice, which is um, which I think is really helpful. And when we look at the returns over time, you know, the European uh, exposure within the portfolio has made a made a material contribution to the to the returns of the portfolio. So that's also been also been been pretty helpful as well. So uh, a small move, but I think important and. Again, I think just indicative of the fact that Dunedin you know, continues to look to how can it do things better, how can we can improve, how can we evolve in, in you know in a marketplace that that certainly uh, isn't static. And um, again, I think you know we'll we'll continue to look to do that uh, as we, as we move through as well. Okay, great. Uh, we'll wrap up there. So thank you, Ben, and thank you, Rebecca, for those insights today. As always, you can find out more about the trust at dunedinincomegrowth.co.uk. And thank you so much for tuning in. This podcast is provided for general information only and assumes a certain level of knowledge of financial markets. It is provided for informational purposes only and should not be considered as an offer, investment recommendation or solicitation to deal in any of the investments or products mentioned herein and does not constitute investment research. The views in this podcast are those of the contributors at the time of publication and do not necessarily reflect those of Aberdeen. The companies discussed in this podcast have been selected for illustrative purposes only or to demonstrate our investment management style and not as an investment recommendation or indication of their future performance. The value of investments and the income from them can go down as well as up and investors may get back less than the amount invested. Past performance is not a guide to future returns, return projections or estimates and provide no guarantee of future results.